If you would, please turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, we'll actually start in chapter 3, verse 10, just for a little bit of context, and then we'll read down through chapter 4. So Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster." Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we... We pray that you would accomplish your will as we turn to your word this morning. That whatever you have appointed your word to do, that you would do it in our hearts, in my heart, in the heart of my brothers and sisters this morning, in the hearts of those who may be here this morning and do not know you as their Savior. And so we give ourselves to you and trust this time to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been going through the book of Jonah, going chapter by chapter, episode by episode, and we've seen how the Jonah, this rebellious prophet, turned away from God's call to go to Nineveh, left went out to sea, God hurled a great wind upon the sea, created a storm that threatened his life and the life of the sailors. Jonah had to be tossed overboard in order to calm the seas, and then Jonah then found himself swallowed up by a great fish and spent three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. 
that we read in the second chapter of his prayer unto the Lord. And God spoke to the fish and it spat out to Jonah. And Jonah then reluctantly finally went to Nineveh. He preached the message that God had called him to preach and that people turned to God in faith and repentance. And throughout the book of Jonah, we've seen several things concerning the character, the person of God. We've learned about the general providence of God, that God is in control of all things in the entire universe and directing all things for his appointed end for them and ultimately to his glory. We've learned about the special providence of God, that God exercises a special care in human events, in history, and the lives of individual people, but especially the lives of his own people. We've also seen the great compassion of the Lord time and time again from the salvation of the sailors in the middle of the sea who turned then to the Lord in faith and reverence and worship, from the salvation of Jonah in the, in the, from the belly of the fish to the compassion of God towards the Ninevites. We've also learned about salvation, that salvation belongs to God alone, meaning that he alone can save, that if anyone would be saved, they must trust in the Lord. And that this also means that God saves whomever he wills, and yet he will never turn away those who come to him in faith and repentance. And so throughout each chapter, we've kind of went from one shocking moment to another. And this last chapter is no different. It's sort of its shock factor, though not nearly as eventful as the previous chapters. But everything that has happened thus far has led to this conclusion. The narrative drives us towards one final lesson revealed to us in this last episode in the story of Jonah. So this morning, the sort of the, the sermon outline is very simple. If you're following along in the insert that's in your bulletin, it's just one point. This is the similar hearts, then followed by four subpoints. So again, Jonah preached. The people repented. It tells us in verse 10 of chapter 3 that God saw what they did. They turned from their evil way. And so God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So then, we see what Jonah did not want to happen, and that is the repentance of the Ninevites. He goes to preach in just eight words. In 40 days, God will bring judgment. God will bring disaster. And the people then turned to God, and what his greatest, his greatest fear ended up coming about. And it seems to me that this is in the entire time, this is what Jonah had expected. He had some idea, some kind of inkling that if he went to Nineveh to preach, that the people would repent, and so he did not want to see the people repent. And Jonah turns out to be a man of great inconsistencies. I mean, to go and preach to a people that you did not want to preach to, just the conflicting thoughts and the conflicting emotions in his heart. 
We see that this was a man who, running away from God, and then God caused disaster in his life, swallowed up by a great fish, and then he prayed to the Lord for mercy, and the Lord spared him, and yet he was angry when God should spare the people that he was about to inflict judgment upon. He seems to hold a lot of conflicting truths in his heart and in his mind, and is unwilling to rejoice and the salvation of others when he himself, in the moments of disaster in his life, was spared. And he becomes exceedingly displeased, it says. He says he becomes angry, angry enough to die. So Jonah cannot even imagine living in a world where these people are in repentance and show reverence to God. That he would rather die than see the Ninevites spared of the judgment of God. Pretty outrageous, pretty, pretty scandalous. And so he prays for death. Actually, he's sort of begging for death. And so God asks him a question. Do you do well to be angry? Do you have a good reason, Jonah, to be angry? A rhetorical question. You and I, as readers, well, we know the answer is no. No, he does not have a justifiable reason to be angry. But God's question is only met with silence. I mean, what else would you expect from an angry and even a selfish and even a temperamental prophet? So he becomes angry. Angry at the result. Angry with God. There's a bit of an irony here that I want to kind of show you. So Isaiah... The prophet Isaiah was called by the Lord. And by the way, Isaiah volunteered <laughs> to be called by the Lord. And you read of Isaiah's specific ministry in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. After receiving this vision of the Lord, it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. And he said, God said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, let they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then Isaiah said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Probably wasn't what Isaiah expected when he volunteered to be God's prophet. Essentially, God tells them, you're going to go and you're going to preach and nobody's going to listen. Nobody's going to respond. Nobody's going to come and call out to God in faith and repentance. In fact, your proclaiming to them my words will only have the effect of doling their ears so that they do not hear, blinding their eyes so that they do not see. In that sense, Isaiah's particular mission, in a way, was kind of unsuccessful because no one would repent at his message. And then when you look at 
Jonah. Jonah, out of probably all the biblical prophets, has the easiest task. I mean, every single prophet would have probably rejoiced to be in Jonah's position, right? To be called by God to go to a particular people and preach the word of God and see people turn to God in faith and repentance. And so it seems that Jonah was actually angry that his, that his mission was a success. He becomes angry, bothered by it. I mean, could you imagine having a friend come to you and say, hey, I'm going to come by tomorrow and help you out with raking the leaves in your yard. And you come next morning, and sure enough, you get it all done. And at the end of the time, together, and it's all done, you're like, man, no, this wasn't supposed to happen. It's like, it's outrageous. It is exactly what it's happening here in Jonah. In fact, he doesn't even, from the, what we have in the information here, what's written for us, he doesn't even tell them, if you repent, God will be merciful to you. He just says, in 40 days, you'll be wiped out. And the people just turn to God in faith and repentance, and God spares them. And it angers Jonah. It angers Jonah because his mission was a success. But then let's see how God responds to Jonah's anger. In verse 6, Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. So a couple of things here we see concerning the character of God. We first see the grace and the patience of God. Here's an angry prophet angry and displeased that his mission was a success, angry and displeased that the people of Nineveh turned to God in faith and repentance, angry that God would spare the people that he felt surely did not deserve the, the, the mercy and the grace of God. And here is the Lord appointing a plant to come up out of the ground and provide a better shade over the head of Jonah, better than the shade that he provided for himself in putting this, this booth together out in the middle of the hot sun. And God is just incredibly kind. Again, showing, as we've seen before, that Jonah is so undeserving of the grace and compassion of the Lord. And here he is receiving the grace and compassion of the Lord that he never asked for. Man, how often is the Lord gracious and compassionate and patient towards us? Even when perhaps our anger is unjustified, especially when we might show that we are undeserving, especially in times where we never ask for the patience and compassion of the Lord. And while the prophet himself is such a, it's a man of just great inconsistencies, I mean, the Lord consistently shows that he is gracious and patient and compassionate over and over again. In this small book, we see that about God. 
And we see that consistently throughout the Scriptures, and it translates especially when you come into the New Testament, when you come and see the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus was incredibly gracious and compassionate and patient. If you remember Peter, who denied the Lord Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times, and the Lord knew that was going to happen, and the Lord knew it when it did happen. And then we come to John 21, verse 15, where we see the grace and compassion of the Lord. When I finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus is restoring Peter back to himself. Notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, no, Peter, no, you don't love me because you denied me three times. He doesn't say that. And he probably had every right to. But he doesn't because he's always gracious and compassionate. And he knows that Peter loves him. And he restores him to himself and he says, and he's essentially he's entrusting his people, he's entrusting his disciples, he's entrusting his church. And he says to Peter, feed my sheep. We see the great grace and compassionate nature of the Lord with doubting Thomas. When Jesus was resurrected from the grave and Thomas was not there to behold the risen Lord and he said, I will never believe unless I see him face to face. And Jesus reappears for Thomas's sake. And he could have just let Thomas linger on for the rest of his life in unbelief, but no, he appears to him so that he might believe. God is always gracious and compassionate. He never changes. And we see that here in Jonah, who again himself is showing that he is undeserving. The second thing we see that we continue to see throughout this, this book is the omnipotence and the providence of the Lord. From the very beginning to God hurling a great wind upon the seas and causing this great storm in the middle of the sea to God, it says, appointing the great fish to swallow up Jonah in the middle of the sea to then speaking to the fish to, swallow, to, to, to vomit out Jonah. And then it tells us that God appointed the plant to come and provide a shade for Jonah. Then God appointed a worm to come and, and eat that shade away. And God even appointed a scorching east wind. God, again and again, is shown to be omnipotent, incredibly powerful over all things, including the animals, including over nature itself. And from this, we can draw comfort from the reality that we are always in God's hands. God is working omnipotently and providentially in the lives of his people through the good times and the bad, through times of rejoicing, and also through times of suffering. God is always present. God is always gracious. God is always working. 
have one, one story that I am convinced is a story of the providence of God. It just happened this past week. This past week, Kaylin and I had this emergency, emergency appointment, and we had to drive down to Reading, Massachusetts. My sister-in-law was in town celebrating someone's birthday, and she was going to go back to work, but her job canceled. She's a nanny, and so the job got canceled. She ended up spending the day here, and thankfully she was around because she could take care of our kids so we can drive down to, to Massachusetts. And it just, it, it, it just gets better from there because, because she had the rest of the day off. She made plans with her former pastor to catch up, to get together. So they decided to get together, go to these woods, go for a walk to catch up. And in the middle of these woods... They come across a dog. Now, it's not like this scrubby, uh, scrubby ugly-looking dog. It's actually a pretty well-maintained, pretty well-groomed dog. It looked like it belonged to someone, but there was nobody else around. And so, for whatever reason, they decide to follow this dog. I mean, I don't know who would do that. I mean, if I saw a dog, I'd be like, oh, it's a dog, and I would just keep on my merry way. But for whatever reason, they decide to follow the dog, thinking that maybe it has an owner. So they follow the dog, and the dog leads them to this sort of this, this ravine. And they hear somebody in the water calling for help. It was an old lady. The owner of the dog had slipped, falling into the water. And it was a cold day. The water was freezing. And she had been crying out for help, but nobody was around. And so they, they find her, and they, they pick her up. And she thought that she was going to die that day. And she heard the gospel that, that day as well. And I don't know what ended up becoming. I don't know. Maybe, hopefully, she'll turn to the Lord Jesus. She hasn't yet. But, could you imagine? I mean, if my sister-in-law's job had never gotten canceled, she would have never made plans with her former pastor, and they would have never gone on this walk and have come across this lady who was close to dying. Listen, there are no accidents God is in control of all things. Even the scriptures say that man may cast the lot. Man may cast the die, but ultimately how it lands is determined by the Lord. The things that you're experiencing today, the things that you've experienced in your past, the things that you might experience in the future, there are no accidents. God is always working providentially in the lives of his people. And you and I may never know exactly how or when those things are mysterious. But as we continue to see in this book, that is that the, 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 the providence and the compassion of the Lord come together. So that when we may not understand why certain things are happening in our lives, why is this happening, why am I going through this, why did this not turn out the way that I expected, why am I going through this tragedy, why is this happening... We can always trust in the compassionate and gracious character of the Lord and trust that He is working providentially in our lives for His glory and for the good of those who love Him. And we sometimes, right, we complain and we grumble, we get frustrated, we get anxious, we get even angry at times. And many times it's not even a justifiable anger. Many of those times that we become frustrated and angry because things don't go the way we want them to, because we expected something and don't get it, because we desire something or whatever the case may be, we grumble and complain 
because we lose sight of the fact that God is a God of providence. We forget that. We lose sight of that. So when things don't go our way, we get frustrated. But God intends to remind us that He's always with His people and He's working in their lives in ways that you and I may never come to understand or see. So God continues to show great grace and patience. Now, if you've been following along, especially you're reading chapter 4, you might ask, well, is it really compassionate? I mean, yes, the Lord provided a shape, but then he quickly took it away. And not only that, but he sort of he, he, he enhanced the prophet's physical suffering. Wait, so what's going on there? And the Lord is intending to reveal something else. And enhancing the prophet's suffering, God is intending to show not only the character, not only to show Jonah himself something, but to show the reader something as well. Which then leads us to this piercing comparison in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, and also much cattle? Again, God asked, do you have good reason to be angry? This time about the plant. So God seems to be turning his attention away from the people of Nineveh and is angry towards the Ninevites, and now turning his attention to the plant that God has graciously provided for him. And Jonah seems to really care about this plant. Care because he provided a wonderful shade in the scorching hot sun. It was a great benefit to him. And yet it tells us right, he was exceedingly glad about it. He really, was, again, was really attached to this plant. And yet God took it away and enhanced his physical suffering. Why did God do this? You see, God is... Such a wonderful, wonderful surgeon. And God is sort of making this incision and removing the heart of Jonah and putting it in front of his face to show him what his heart was really like. And what was revealed was that he cared more about the plant than he did about the people of Nineveh. He cares about a plant that was here in a moment and gone in a moment. A plant that he did not work for, that he did not plant, that he did not till the ground for, a plant that he did not see sprout up over time. He didn't work for it, yet he became so incredibly attached and cared about the plant and didn't seem to care about the people of Nineveh. He says, should I not pity the people of Nineveh who turned to me in faith and repentance? Jonah, never mind the fact that you don't like the people of Nineveh. Should you at least not have some pity towards the 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from the left? That is a reference to children. 
probably five years old or four years old and under, who do not literally know yet their right, what is their right and their left. Jonah, you cared so much about this plan. Should you at least not care enough about the children who were about to experience my judgment and fury because of the sins of the people? Should I not at least pity them and spare them? And yet you care so much about the plan. You could at least care about the animals, which is much more valuable than this plant that provided shade for you. You see, Jonah wanted God to be consistent with his original word, that is, that he would bring judgment upon the Ninevites. And so he becomes angry that God wasn't consistent with his original word. But God wasn't being inconsistent. Not at all. God is never inconsistent. But he, in fact, shows that he is actually consistent with his own nature and character. Because while holding up Jonah's heart to Jonah's face, God is also showing him his own heart at the same time. And he is showing to Jonah the nature of his character. And that God always acts consistently with his own character and nature. God never changes. And so we then we find out why Jonah intended to flee from the presence of God in the first place, way back in chapter 1. And he tells us this, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Essentially, Jonah was intending to flee from the presence of God because he knew God to be consistent. I was intending to head to the other direction because I know, God, that you are merciful and gracious and compassionate and relenting of disaster. That is why he intended to flee in the first place. And so even here, Jonah is affirming the fact that God is always consistent with his character. He just knew that if he had gone to Nineveh and preached, they would turn to the Lord in repentance and that God would actually be merciful to them because that is the kind of God that he is. And he didn't want that to happen. Malachi 3.6 tells us, For I, the Lord, do not change. He's always gracious and compassionate and merciful. James 1.17 tells us every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hebrews 13.8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So by now... You've seen many flaws in the character of Jonah, and as I said before, that the prophet, that the book of Jonah is so different from the other prophet, or prophetical books, excuse me, because while those other books focus on the content of the message, this book seems to focus much more on the life of Jonah, and through the disasters, through the events, through the flaws of this character, we are then we are to see the character of the Lord the gracious and compassionate character of the Lord. 
And while this book so vividly highlights the flaws of Jonah, in order that we might see that much more clearly the character of God, we must be careful of where we might stand. Right? Let us not think ourselves to be nothing like the prophet Jonah. Some of his flaws might be some of our flaws as well. If we truly examine ourselves, we might discover that we may not be all that different from Jonah. There may be some inconsistencies in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our own minds. And surely we've at some times been guilty of that, where we might say something and do something else. We're not unfamiliar with inconsistencies. There's so much inconsistencies in the world. We experience it through different people, in the workplace, through leaders, in different places in all the world. A pastor by the name of Kevin DeYoung once wrote a book, Why We Love the Church, and he writes about these different inconsistencies, consistency specifically towards the church. He writes, but then again, consistency is not a postmodern virtue, and nowhere is this more aptly displayed than in the barrage of criticisms leveled against the church. They bemoan the overprogrammed church, but then think of a hundred complex, resource-hungry things the church should be doing. They don't like the church because it is too hierarchical, but then hate it when it has poor leadership. They want more of a family spirit, but too much family, and they'll complain that the church is too inbred. They want the church to know that its reputation with outsiders is terrible, but then are critical when the church is too concerned with appearances. They want church unity and decry all our denominations, but fail to see the irony in the fact that they have left to do their own thing because they can't find a single church that can satisfy them. They want leaders with vision, but don't want anyone to tell them what to do or how to think. They call for not judging the spiritual path of other believers who are dedicated to pleasing God and blessing people, and then they blast the traditional church in the harshest, most unflattering terms. But those aren't just criticisms that are coming out from the world towards the church, but these are sometimes even criticisms that come from within as well. These inconsistencies. And even us, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we can also have inconsistencies in our own lives. Right? We may encourage others to trust in the Lord, trust Him with your life, trust Him in your suffering, trust Him in your finances and all these different things, but yet we may fail to trust Him ourselves. We might say that we love the church, we love God's people, we love the brethren, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet there are many Christians who neglect the fellowship of the saints and may not do anything for their brothers and sisters in Christ. We affirm the call to holiness, pursue holiness, pursue sanctification, imitate Christ, follow the ways of the Lord, yet how often do we sin against God? We advise and encourage and exhort Brothers and sisters, to pray to the Lord, ask, plead, knock, ask. And yet there are many who rarely pray themselves. And I don't just bring these things before your attention as a way of judgment. I, I myself have to struggle with my own inconsistencies. But before we 
take jabs at the character of Jonah, let's make sure that we examine ourselves and remove any logs that may be in our own eyes. Scriptures command us, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Let us examine ourselves. Because the Lord is not only showing his heart to the prophet Jonah, but the Lord is also showing us his heart as well. He's showing us what his heart is like. And he wants us to see his heart so that we may see where there might be some inconsistencies with our own heart. Because we are called, our hearts are called to be in tune to the same beat, to the heart of Christ. Because we're called to imitate Christ. And the Lord doesn't intend to show you his heart this morning, not as a way of judgment, not as a way to criticize his beloved children, but he's lovingly calling you and I to strive to have a heart that is more like Christ. Make sure that we look at ourselves and see where there might be some inconsistencies so that we may strive to have the heart of Christ. The Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that is about the pursuit of the kingdom of heaven, in that particular sermon, we, are, we, we see what it is to pursue this kingdom. And part of the pursuing of this kingdom is to pursue the heart of Christ and imitate the heart of Christ. In Matthew 5, in, this, in the Beatitudes, it shows us the heart of Christ. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. John 15, this also speaks to the kind of heart we should have. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. It's a promise there, and the promise is that if you ask for whatever you wish, it will be done for you. But there's a catch. And the catch is that you must abide in the love of Christ that you must abide in his words, that you must do as he says. And when you do that, and when you abide in the vine who is Jesus Christ, what happens is that your desires begin to change, so that what you desire is ultimately what Jesus desires for you. I mean, by way of examination, something you can ask yourself this very morning is, what is it that I am desirous of? 
What am I wishing for? What do I want in this moment, in this time, in this season? What do I want? Then ask yourself, would I still want it if I abided in the Lord Jesus more right now? If I abided more in the Lord Jesus by abiding in his love, following his ways, trusting in him, following him, would my desires change? Would my prayers change? And when you find that your heart, that your desires are changing, you're going to find yourself desiring the same thing that Christ desires for you. And when you desire those very same things, the Lord is more than eager to give you what you ask for. The scriptures teach us that the mark of true conversion is consistently bearing fruit. And in that way is how we grow in imitating the heart of Christ. When the scriptures command us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, it is calling us to live in a manner that is consistent with what we believe. And right, we fail at times. We don't always get it right. We are probably more inconsistent than we are consistent. But that is why then we fall back onto the gracious and compassionate nature of God, who is always consistent. And because He is always consistent, we can always turn to the Lord with our inconsistencies, with our weaking, with our weaknesses, with our failures, with our sins. And trust that he will not turn us away, but draw us in and be gracious and compassionate towards us. And as we learned last week, the Lord knows how to deal gently with his people, even when they are in sin. So we trust in his character, we trust in his providence.